0: If you don't subscribe to our Women's Performance newsletter, you are definitely missing out. It's totally free. So head over to womensperformance.com and subscribe now. That's womensperformance.com. This podcast is a production of Feisty Media. Hello, feisty listeners. I'm so glad you are here. Uh, one note before we get started, there seems to be like a happy hour or something happening right outside my office. Um, so I do not have complete soundproofing in here just yet. So I apologize if there is some distracting, uh, background chatting and clinking of glasses. Uh, but I hope you can persevere for the sake of the cause here. Um, so we also wanted to tell you that we've had some busy times these last few weeks of feisty... So busy that Carrie and producer Carrie and I decided to take a breath and play a rebroadcast on this podcast channel. So I hope you all had a chance to listen to the amazing Christine Yu last week, author of Up to Speed. In particular, if you missed that episode the first time around, because she was um, full of wisdom and insight based on her research. Um, and for those who are in the first cohort of our New online course, Strong. I sincerely hope you are all learning a few things and feeling increasingly comfortable lifting heavy shit and understanding why women need to lift heavy shit and all of the things that are around that to support it, like uh, nutrition and all the other things that you're learning in the course. So I genuinely hope that you are. Enjoying it, and it's certainly been incredible watching all of your comments come in as you go through the course together. So thank you for being there and for supporting each other. It's fantastic. Also, this week in Feistyland, we launched our campaign as we build into the VinFast Ironman World Championship in Kona, Hawaii. And this year, the I'm a triathlete myself, so um, Kona. I raced in Kona at the Ironman World Championship. Uh, Six times so it's definitely doing this coverage is near and dear to my heart Um, The men's world championship this year was in Nice, France and it is done as of last weekend And the women will have the entire stage to themselves in Kona this year. So that's pretty exciting So if you'd like to support the campaign to get maximum media coverage and viewership of the women's world championship, head on over to WatchTheWomenOfKona.com. We will throw that in that link also into the show notes, WatchTheWomenOfKona.com, and you can find everything you need to know over there. So on to today's show. As we know, a lot of female athletes suffer from low energy availability and REDS or REDS, which stands for Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. And just to underline how prevalent this problem is, one study showed that 41 to 47% of female athletes have problematic low energy availability. That means almost half of us are not performing at our best because we aren't eating enough. And while eating disorders and disordered eating play into this equation, it's also just hard to eat enough sometimes. Um, I know I suffer from loss of appetite at certain times of day or month, And it's just hard to get the calories in. So I brought in a couple experts from Project Red S. Project Red S is the digital clubhouse for Red S awareness, prevention, and support. It's a place where people of all ages, genders, abilities, and activities can come together to learn how to prevent or overcome relative energy deficiency in sport. It's a place to pursue peak performance in a healthy body and mind where instead of winning at all costs, it's about winning without compromise. I really love that excerpt from um, their website, which we will throw that obviously into the show notes as well. Uh, So today I have two guests that I'm talking to. One is the founder of Project Red S. She's called Pippa Wolven-Peters, and she was an English middle schools and British universities champion and a former GB athlete. And is now a positive psychology coach and an athlete mentor. Over a decade of competing in international athletics while studying in the UK and the US, Pippa experienced her fair share of highs and lows, including Red S. Several years after overcoming the condition herself, Pippa established Project Red S with the aim of providing the resources she needed when her struggle began. My other guest is Holly Brooks, also from Project Red Ass. She's a two-time cross-country skiing Olympian, a former professional athlete, and now an advocate and counselor for athletes. Holly is intimately aware of the sacrifice, dedication, and perseverance that athletes leverage to reach their potential in sport. Her own experience with red ass led her down a long and painful road of infertility to start her family. And today she helps others avoid similar pitfalls in her role as a licensed professional counselor in Alaska. I I honestly, I love talking to people who use their experience to help others avoid the, the ways that they've um, felt that they were taken off track in their lives. So, um, for that reason alone, I'd love this interview, but there is so much to learn from this episode for every athlete, so I hope you enjoy. HIPAA and Holly, welcome to the podcast. Thank Thanks you. so much. Yeah. yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you both.
1: You're you're kind of all we're kind of all over the world basically. Um Pippa, where are you? I am in Beaconsfield, just outside of London in England.
0: Right, and Holly, you're in Alaska, am I right? Yeah, I'm I'm
2: in Anchorage, Alaska. So
0: did, Okay, I'm i I'm, I'm already off track of the questions I was going to ask, but how did you two find each other? <laughs> Holly, I think this is one for you. <laughs>
2: Okay. It's, it's kind of a long story, but I I will try to do the short version. Um, uh, I have in the past gone on a speaking tour, um, to high school runners, just about eating disorders, reds, um, and previously the female athlete triad, um, in my hometown, just wanting to raise awareness. And, um, I had recently done the latest version of that speaking tour. And a previous sponsor of mine, um, I was a competitive cross-country skier, sent me an email and said, hey, Holly, we need to do something about the female athlete triad. And and I wrote back and I was like, hey, it's actually called Reds. And I had just had a nice write-up in the newspaper about it. So I sent I sent him uh, the article about it. And he had already bought all the domains, femaleathletetriad.com and all these things. Okay. And <laughs> He was like
0: six it... steps ahead, but 12 steps behind.
2: <laughs>
0: L- literally. Yes. Yes. His
2: enthusiasm is palpable. Mm-hmm. And I, in, in this process of sending him some information to try to educate him, I stumbled across Pippa's old website called Athletes in Balance. I found it in a Runner's World article and sent it to him. And next thing I knew, he had reached out to Pippa on LinkedIn and offered her um, funding to quit her job and start Project us full time. Wow. And so it is. It is a really random story. I I love it. And so I'm in Alaska, Pippa's in the UK, and we've been working together for a while now. And we met for the first time in person just a couple of weeks ago in Boston at the female athlete conference. So we had never met. And that is essentially how Project uh, Red S, but Project Reds um, started.
0: Wow. What a crazy story. Okay, Pippa, it's like a dream to have someone reach out to you and say, I'm gonna fund your passion. <laughs> you know, like that's that's wild. On, on your website, it says the world's fastest growing club for sustainable performance. So tell us a little bit about what
1: Project Reds is. Mm, yeah, I mean, it still feels like a bit of a dream. Um, I was an athlete before, and I was working full time in a job that was absolutely nothing to do with sport or Red S. And so it was a very surreal experience to have somebody, you know, offer their support and back me to bring awareness to this um, condition on, on like a mass scale. <laughs> and in a nutshell, I was simply just mentoring other athletes. A bit like Holly, I was going into schools and colleges and clubs and delivering talks just to raise awareness, um, having experienced the condition myself. And I still had a bit of an athlete's voice, I was competing for England, and I was just trying to do my bit for the cause. And. It was through Holly that we met this um, awesome guy who was offering us this donation. And we decided to come together and try to create a resource that kind of provided everything an athlete would need that was suffering from this condition. And from there, it expanded into prevention and providing something for supporters, too. So not just the athlete, but also their coach or parent or partner who might be trying to support them with this, too. Mm hmm. Wow.
0: Um, okay. And you're both elite athletes, right? So I do want to take a minute before we start, because we're going to talk about Red Ass and, and LEA and some of the challenges, but like, could you take a moment to tell us like about your sports careers and um, some of your accolades? Holly, why don't we start with you?
2: Yeah, well, I um, was and still am a cross-country skier. And I always talk about my career in that um, it was a little bit of a surprise, seeing that I grew up in Seattle, Washington. Um, it doesn't snow in Seattle, but I grew up skiing with my family. My dad was my coach. My siblings were my teammates, the way I describe it. And um, I was pretty middle of the road. Uh, but what what was really great um, is that I fostered this great, like intrinsic love for the sport. So I skied in college. I never made it to NCAAs, which is, you know, um, maybe fairly basic. Um, You know, if you're going to be on the elite track. I graduated from my undergraduate um, experience at Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington, and promptly moved to Alaska, where I found lots of skiers. Um, And so I actually started working as a ski coach. Um, At a high school, I had 100 kids, um, everything from exchange students who had never seen snow before to the junior national champion. And it was a dream come true for someone who grew up in Seattle in the middle of the grunge era who did this really the sport that felt very obscure. Um, And and so I um, actually I then became a full time coach for one of the prominent clubs in the country called APU Nordic Ski Center and i started skiing a lot so as a coach my style was to do the the intervals with my athletes um so i wasn't on the side of the trail mm-hmm. and then i had all these friends that skied and so i ended up getting in really 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 good shape and not knowing it i went years without racing and then jumped in some races and did well thought it was a fluke jumped in other races did well thought it was a fluke and then at some point I couldn't, um, ignore the fact that, uh, maybe I was faster than I thought. So it was hard though, because in my mind, I really identified as this kind of mediocre middle of the pack athlete. Mm, Yeah. So, um, I, I had this really interesting career where I was a coach and then I became an elite athlete. So, um, I made my first Olympic team at the age of 27 and it was, um, very convenient i guess in a way because olympic trials were here in my hometown
0: mm-hmm. so
2: i had all of the people that i coached out cheering for me i had like literally the biggest cheer squad ever <laughs> um it was it was incredible so then i went on to race in the vancouver olympics in 2010 in sochi in 20 20- 14 um, and then retired after that. So I was a coach and then an, an elite athlete. The whole thing was unexpected um, and also just such a, such a blessing um, and
0: a, a fun story. That's a crazy story. How did your, I mean, at, at, in the first, when, when you, the athletes you were coaching first found out that like <laughs> that their coach is actually the one who made the team, like how did they, How did they respond? Like, were they supportive immediately or was it like, wait a second, we're supposed to be the athletes?
2: (laughs) Totally. It was um, at first they were so excited. Like I, you know, everyone was just um, kind of along for the ride with me. It was Mm -hmm. really, really exciting. And then reality hit that, Hey, wait a minute. Um, This means that we might be losing her as our, as our coach. And so, Um, it was, yeah, they were, they were definitely disappointed, but I know my first year of elite racing, I got invited to go on the world cup, but I had already made the commitment to coach at junior Olympics and I'm, I'm like someone of my word. And so I, I actually passed up, you know, this opportunity to go race on the world cup because I had already committed to, you know, coaching essentially high school age athletes at their national championship. So, wow,
0: um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, amazing. I I think I like that story because, and I come from Ironman triathlon, right? And so there's a lot of that. So a lot of like late bloomers or people coming from other sports, sort of later in their mid twenties, into the sport. So, um, but other sports tracks don't necessarily have that. Like if you're not doing it as a teenager, you're almost there's no way you're going to an Olympic Games, <laughs> kind of thing.
2: Pretty much all my teammates were, you know, were and had been in the development pipeline, um, you know, since they were right. 14 or, you know, or earlier. So yeah. um, it's not very common in, in my sport. Um, yeah. So anyway. Wow.
0: Yeah. And Pippa, tell us about your story. You were an elite runner for GB. Am I right?
1: Yeah, I feel like my sport is pretty boring compared to both of yours. And I'm wondering if it's too late for me to take up. (laughs) It's never too late. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still in my 20s. So maybe this (laughs) time. Uh, not for long, but yes. Yeah, so I came from a really sporty family. I'm the youngest of four siblings and all three of my older siblings had represented England or Great Britain in their respective sports. which Wow. Were- <laughs> um, yeah, I know. Right, tell me the sports. That's amazing. <laughs> so, um, well, Actually, both of my parents as well, um, just to add to that. Um, but my my dad, my brother and my sister were field hockey players. My mum was a squash player and my um, other sister is a professional event rider. So as in horses, um, mm. and I, I guess I had a tough act to follow, but I never really felt any pressure in, in, in that sense, because w- when we were young, we all just did everything. You know, we never really focused too much on one thing. Um, and I played hockey for the South of England as well and loved running, but never took it too seriously until I made the decision to go to university in England. Um, and I was pretty average at first, actually. I you know, never really won races. Um, but eventually in my last year of school, I won the English school steeplechase, which was still a bit of an up and coming up and coming event back then. And I managed to get a scholarship at Birmingham University and I was there for two years before deciding to make the jump over to America. And the allure of America had always sort of been there. I knew that that was something I wanted to do one day. But when I was making the decision about where to go at the age of 18, I just didn't feel either psychologically or, you know, I just didn't feel mature enough. And I certainly wasn't doing a high enough training volume. So I'm really glad that I went to Birmingham first and just sort of built up towards being able to handle a much higher level of competition in America. And so I went off to FSU after two years in Birmingham, and that was a dream come true. You know, every British athlete would dream about going over to America and, you know, almost acting like a professional athlete. And I was there for two years and I graduated um, with a different degree from Florida State and then came back to the UK to finish my former degree in Birmingham. So yeah, and in that time, I I went to the World Juniors, I ran at the Commonwealth Games, which is like a mini version of the Olympics. Um, But I never made the Olympics. And that still, you know, hangs over me slightly. But I think maybe when we talk about red S, reds, uh, see why.
0: Yeah. Wow. Do you think, just back to this family thing, what do you think? Do you think it's in your genes? Or do you think, like, would you put the fact that so many people in your family were elite athletes into, like, is that genetics or is that nurture? Or how
1: would you um, describe that? I definitely think a bit of both. I actually... I'm not that interested in sport <laughs> other than running and actually doing that myself. I'm not sort of prone to go and watch any other sports event or you know, do things that I'm not actively participating in. So I don't know. I think, I think it was a bit of both. Um, and I think it was fun. So that made it really easy to to do lots of things and to do them well, because we wanted to spend time outdoors doing sport. So yeah, there's maybe an element of, of, genetic talent there, but certainly not 100%. Right.
0: So tell us then, since you kind of led into it there, Pippa, your story with um, Red S and LEA. I know a lot of athletes have struggled with that. So just tell us your sort of personal story. Mm.
1: So yeah, it wasn't really something that I'd ever imagined struggling with. I you know, came from this family who were always doing sport and we just ate like horses. And it was kind of a survival of the fittest approach to mealtimes. You You didn't literally eat horses, you ate like horses. (laughs) horses. (laughs) I don't think my sister would have approved that we had. But yeah, we kind of just, you know, all muddled in. And, uh, you know, it was like having four teenage boys for my mum, probably because we would just fight over food and we'd always get our our fill. Um, And so when I went off to university, in the uk i was lucky enough to get a meal plan where you just turn up to the canteen and eat what's on offer and that was you know abundant and it was just carbs on carbs and it was perfect for someone like me um who was expending so much energy and training and studying and and traveling around you know and um That was awesome. And then when I went over to America, it was just such a different story. I was all of a sudden sort of thrown into this really elite environment where nutrition was something that people talked about and focused on. Um, We had this concept of clean eating that everybody on the team sort of bought into, and that was actively encouraged by our coach um, and something that I'd never really heard of, but I was quite a all-in person. So once i came to understand this topic, I thought, well, yeah, I'm going to go for this. I've never tried to make refinements to my diet before. And maybe this is what it will take to get me to that next level. And so I did. Um, And it was very subtle at first, I would just cut out the extra bag of chips or extra cookies after my meal. And, you know, very slowly whittling my diet down to what you might think would be the diet of an elite athlete. Um, And I was obviously doing a little bit more training. The intensity was a bit higher. And so all of these changes kind of brought about this perfect storm for low energy availability. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea, you know, that I was falling down this slippery slope towards relative energy deficiency um, until I would just start getting ill and injured and these things would take longer to shift than would be normal and they would recur. And this wasn't something I was used to, you know, I'd never really had an injury before this. Um, And so it was difficult because all of these things we come to expect from sport to some degree, you expect to feel tired and ill and injured. And when you're training in such an elite environment, that's kind of normalized. And it wasn't until I eventually returned home to the UK that I found medical expert who could diagnose me with red S or reds. So yeah, it was, you know, I never put any blame on the institution or my coach or any particular individual, but it was just this brilliant combination of factors that um, unfortunately led me into the downward spiral. Yeah, it's, a, that's such a relatable
0: story because I think that for a lot of elite athletes, but also for- for a lot of everyday athletes, like it's that focus on performance and just like self-improvement that, and then all the messaging that we get about what our diet should look like that actually can lead to the LEA and the red ass. Like, yes, you have um, eating disorders and disordered eating and those kinds. And it's like a, a scale, right. But that actually it's something that can happen in a way that's where we're just so focused on Our performance. And it sounds like that's sort of what happened with you. Mm,
1: Yeah. I mean, it often starts with the absolute best intentions. You know, we athletes just want to get the best out of ourselves. And members of the regular population who wouldn't necessarily define themselves as athletes might just want to make some healthy, quote unquote, changes. And it can very easily lead to this low energy availability, which, when it's not addressed, can become chronic and then lead to this whole host of health problems. Right. And so do you
0: feel that, you know, do you feel like you had lost potential there because you because of the injuries and the illness that were kind of a knock on effect from the red S?
1: Yes, definitely. I think because it took me so long to reach even a diagnosis and then an understanding of the condition and how to overcome it, um, I did waste years and years. And even once I knew what the problem was, I didn't really have a support system around me to help make those changes. And by the time I knew what it was, I had become so uh, used to acting in a certain way with my training and eating in a certain way. And then, you know, these behaviours and preoccupations, as Holly will know, become very hard to rewire. So, yes, I definitely um, didn't reach my potential. I mean, I'll never say never. I might one day return to high level sport. Who knows? But um, yeah, it's it's a shame. And I see this happening to athletes across the globe at every level of sport.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting because I'm not a huge like regret person. Um, but when I look at, and it sounds like you're not either, you know, you're continuing to move forward and and everything, but um when I look back on my career, it's like I, I don't even want to necessarily analyze it because I feel very confident that I was in and out of LEA for the. Entire fifteen years of a of a pro triathlon career, right? And as long as I can now be doing something to help, like exactly like you are, right? Like help kids now or young women not have to do that. And so, like I feel
1: like I feel great about it, you know. Mm, totally exactly and as much as it's it's a story i wish i didn't have to tell at least perhaps it might help steer someone on the right track or you know make them recognize the these behaviors or symptoms in themselves and that's that's you know helpful i wish i'd had more athletes talking about this back when i was suffering from it
0: yeah and Holly, you were able to go to a couple Olympic Games, um, which is amazing. Um but I understand you you had trouble later getting pregnant, is that right?
2: Yeah, and so I um at one point lost my well I at first I lost my cycle due to the Mirena IUD um and then got that taken out. Mm-hmm. Um and then my period just never came back. Um and so at, when I was an athlete, it was just really convenient. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of athletes, uh, are just so focused and so on track, what do I, uh, what can I do for my sport? Um, and it was really convenient to not have a period. And so I really didn't care. In fact, I embraced it and, um, it wasn't until I retired that, was kind of like, Hey, this is, this is maybe a problem, right? Like I, I want to start a family. And so, um, luckily, you know, my low energy availability or, you know, my experience with reds wasn't, um, as extreme, right. As, as Pippa's. And so, you know, I was lucky that I didn't have, um, you know, a huge, huge host of symptoms. But when it came time to start a family, it was definitely an issue, right? I went through a pretty long um, process with infertility, um, then multiple pregnancy loss, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so what was at one point really convenient for me as an athlete became um, really, really, really difficult um, quite quickly. And, And so you know, Pippa, we've talked about how there are so many components of Reds and um, fertility, and the ability to um, have children is is one of the the many implications. And luckily, it worked out for me. I have I currently have five year old twins, um, so it it you know it feels all good now. But I, when I think of other athletes in this situation. I really want them to have their their options um, open and to, you know not limit their future just based on their, um, you know, like athletic desires and, and pursuits.
0: So what so if when if we're gonna talk about how we're helping the next generation, like what should young athletes or any any female athlete look out for as the symptoms of Red s? like what would what are the
1: red flags? I mean, as I alluded to, these things are very subtle and they are things we come to expect from performing in sport, um, illness, injury, fatigue. Uh, and I think it's just when these things become too frequent or take too long to shift or, you know, they're paired with a a bone stress injury or a missing or abnormal menstrual cycle or loss of morning erections for male athletes. And It's just noticing when things start to shift between being what might be expected of an athlete once a season, you know, an injury or an illness or something and actually becoming a bit too persistent or recurring. And there is a line there. And I think it's very hard for the athlete themselves to determine when that's crossed, but hopefully the support system around them will be gaining a knowledge and an understanding of these issues and can help them too. I often. Just think about changes in
2: behavior, and it's really difficult because, you know, we've talked about how there's this fine line between um, what makes you a dedicated athlete is also, you know, and and someone who is exhibiting perseverance and you know the ability to be all in and dedicated in their sport. Is also one of the kind of risk factors, right? And that characteristic can easily go sideways and make someone really good at, you know, engaging in disordered behaviors and, you know, having disordered thoughts. And so, it's really nuanced. But I often think about um, opportunity cost and when you know, athletes, for example, they, when they can't travel without their own food, right. Or they get so obsessed with clean eating or, you know, and, and those behaviors, or when, you know, thoughts of food and body start to just rule their lives. Right. And it's hard because our bodies are our tools, right. As, as athletes, but it's really hard to decipher when do you cross that line And, you know, I, I often talk about how one of my passions is sustainability in sport. And I often see people start to lose the joy in their sport. And it just becomes, you know, more like a job. How can I get faster? How can I get better? And it becomes this obsessive runaway train. Um, And I know maybe that's not a very specific answer, but, you know, I see that kind of behavior change or they really lose sight of their their why and um what got them into sport in the in the first place.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah, and one thing, you know, I often think about this and I think a lot of this is what this is the question I would ask if if twenty year old Sarah was more informed about red Reds and lea than we were back then, um I think you know you see like if you look, for example, your sport, Pippa, sepal chase, or anything that happens on the track or in running, you can see very clearly that there's a body type that tends to be successful at that, right? And so if you are, like, let's say you are someone who is trying to achieve that, like, and it's, it's like you wearing it on the outside, you can't see the size of their lungs from from watching someone on TV, right? How do you you know, how do you talk to athletes about that, about balancing like that kind of the obvious need to be like, well, I actually, my body needs to fit into this category in order to be successful at this. How do you talk about that part of it? Like, and do you think that there's too narrow a range of bodies or do you see, do we see different types of, cause in some sports like gymnastics, sorry, now I'm just having a little rant, but like in, like in gymnastics, we've seen an evolution of different types of bodies that have been successful as we've kind of come to realize that this is a, a problem. So like gymnastics, when I, when I was a kid, it was like tiny little teenagers. Right. And now you see these strong women out there like a lot. You have more variety of of body types. So how do we talk to young athletes about that particular piece, especially when they're seeing something that might not align with what we're telling them, which is like you need to eat more.
1: (laughs) Right. Well, I guess there's two parts to that. From my perspective. And the first is that I wish that the athletes who had the type of body that I was chasing were able to explain to me that if I just played the long game and carried on training hard, and carried on feeling well and recovering, then I would have acquired that naturally over the course of a long and sustainable career. And then I also wish that there were more role models of people in different body types and shapes and sizes showing that it was possible to be at the top of their game whatever that looked like in that body and then I might not have felt such a pressure to look like somebody else um, but it's very hard when you're a young aspiring athlete and you're looking up to these people who look so different to you might to how you might look and trying to imagine that one day you'll get there naturally. It's very difficult, you know, especially when social media and general media perpetuate this idea that you have to make changes to your diet and drastically increase your training in order to do so. Yeah, great answer.
0: Holly, did you have something to add there?
2: Yeah, I just, so one thing that I've been thinking a lot about is, you know, Pippa referred to, if if someone would have just told me that I would acquire that body in the long game, Um, I think that's, that's absolutely right. But the problem is that especially young athletes, um, athletes, you know, in the middle of puberty, they don't, they don't have that, that foresight. And something that I've been thinking about a lot is in the U S we now have something called, well, called the NIL name, image, and likeness, right. And all of a sudden athletes own their name, image, and likeness. And, you know, NCAA sport is no longer amateur, right? Those athletes can make money in a lot of ways. I think that's a good thing in in some ways, right? Like, I don't think that just the institutions and the coaches should be making money off the backs of the athletes. But what I have noticed, and what I think we don't fully understand yet, is the impact that that's having on athlete mental health and the pressure to acquire that body.
0: Oh, now. interesting. Yeah. So more like a body image kind of public, like, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. It.
2: Because, because mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you know, high school athletes are being recruited to NCAA institutions and there is a lot of money on, on the line. Right. And, and now they own their name, image and likeness. And so now, you know, they, they have, um, you know, we have collegiate athletes and I think there's a gymnast from LSU who is making the most money and has the biggest social media following. And, you know, in in essence, you know, they are being um, recruited for their bodies, <laughs> right? This like really perpetuates the sexualization of of sport and of athletes. And so it's really hard to focus on the long game when there is so much emphasis on the short game right and what can you do for me this weekend what can you do for me this season right and um now people are being recruited for their talent yes but they're also being recruited for diet culture reasons and you know and and their bodies and the their aesthetic and i'm as a therapist i'm a little terrified you know of of this and I am really curious to see how this is going to trickle down because we know that there are lots of dangers associated with early sports specialization. And so if there is more money on the line earlier, it's really pressuring um, athletes and families to, you know, do everything they can earlier, you know, often at the same time that athletes and female bodied athletes are. Supposed to be going through puberty, right? And there are, you know, some, uh, there can be some awkward moments, right? We know that for the long game, puberty is performance enhancing, right? Mm. But things and pressures like the NIL aren't, um, they don't give us enough time, right? To, to go through that process. Yeah. And so I'm, I am very concerned about this and um, the implication that it's going to have on fueling. Um, I think it's going to have, a a big impact um, on the athlete population.
0: Right. And how do we, that could even apply to, you know, that's a really great example about um, NIL and and NCAA athletes and high school athletes being recruited. But also I'm thinking of the everyday athlete who might just have a goal. That's a short-term goal. That's sort of like, okay, I qualified as an amateur in to the world championships in my sport or something like that. And I've got four months, right? And I feel like if I was in a smaller body, I would do better. Um, So what do we tell those people?
1: Mm, It's a good question. I guess we tell them that maybe making shortcuts now will get them to where they want to go in the short term, but unless they're able to then recharge their batteries and rest properly, properly and fuel properly, then it won't be sustainable in the long term. And I think people just need to know the potential costs of whatever changes they're going to make before they make them so that they can make that decision informed and educated. Yeah. I mean, you can't do anything if you're not healthy.
0: Right. Sorry, Holly, go ahead.
2: I mean, I was just going to say the problem is that people, we, we live in this society that is all about immediate gratification Mm -hmm. and, and, someone can, can preach about the long-term effects or the long game all day long. But, you know, I work with lots of teenagers and if it's not affecting them now, often they don't care. Right, <laughs> And so we needed to be talking about the long-term effects, but we also need to be talking about the short-term effects. Right. Um, but the problem is, and, and we all know this, if, you know, especially in, um, endurance sports where there is a strength to weight ratio. If you lose weight, you might temporarily see an increase in performance, right? But it's very, very temporary. And so I think that's the, that's the challenge that we're facing here. How do we highlight these long-term effects, right? When, um, you know people don't have fully developed brains <laughs> you know i mean really totally mm-hmm. really but i always tell people hey it's you know my therapy clients i'm like hey it's not about my goals right i'm i'm here to help you with your goals but if i had a goal for you my my goal for you is to be able to be active for life mm-hmm. and i don't want you to be a 21 year old walking around with the bones of an 80 year old i want you to be able to do this for the rest of your life and, and to be active. And I know that that's hard to see right now, and that's hard to prioritize right now, but I'm telling you, this is really, really important.
0: Yeah. And even, you know, in my sport, I saw, I've seen quite a few athletes go through that little immediate, like you're talking about that a little immediate performance boost where they get a little bit leaner and they have maybe one race or two races, but then it goes, (laughs) but then everything go south and it goes south fast and hard and like recovering and coming out of that can take months or years right so I think that even people without a fully developed brain as you say can understand that like they're you know it's yes you get a performance boost but it's very very sometimes but it's very short term
1: yeah Mm -hmm. like it's not yeah Yeah, I was going to say one of the challenges of that potential performance boost is that then the athlete might associate whatever they were doing with their diet and their training to that performance achievement and then continue to think that that's the only way they'll ever perform that well and not make the changes required post whatever performance they might have done well in to make it sustainable. Yeah, absolutely.
0: You know, what? a few weeks back, I talked to a couple of our Canadian lightweight rowers um and there were i mean there was layers and layers to that interview but one of the things we talked about was making weight because they have to be a certain combined weight in the boat right? And what struck me walking away was like how much support they had in order to be able to go through a cycle every year where they were like a little heavier in the winter or the off season. And then they would, you know, they had like dieticians and mental health coaches and their coach and they had like people to support them at every single step so they could continue to be healthy during that phase where they had to be a little bit lighter to make weight for the boat. and then you know and then go back into this phase where they were you know sometimes like several kilos heavier during the off season and getting used to that process and I'm like wow if that's what it takes for these for elite rows just to be a few kilos one way or another you know all of this support for for olympians right i'm like the rest of us don't have that support system right <laughs> like it's actually a dangerous game then to be like undercutting your food right? And trying to stay healthy. Um, So it just kind of struck me like in that way that, wow, um, most of us don't have that opportunity to do that. So why
1: not just stay healthy all the time? That is such a good example, though, of how it can be done with the right support system in place and how many of us try to do it alone and actually don't have that support system. And it really backfires. But sometimes it does take trial and error. It takes personal experience to recognize that. Um, And our challenge, you know, as people who run Project Reds is to try to educate them of it before they have to go backwards, which is tough. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I want to ask you, you know, this is a question that I've asked before on the podcast, because one of our feisty interns, who's a young athlete, asked this question of me, and I was like, "Good question." Um, <laughs> that you know, she's kind of as a twenty-year-old got the message that we need to eat more. Like she's like, "I know we need to eat more," got all that, whatever. And then she's like, "But what do I do? What do I actually?" Eat <laughs> or how do I know? Like, and we've, you know, we have a course um, called Fueled that's designed for like all active women around, and where um, one of the modules introduces this idea of intuitive eating, right? And I think so many people have shut down their ability to connect with their own hunger, for example, because we've been told so many other things that we've got used to ignoring that. So, how do we help? So this is like a massive question, but. How do we help people understand or empower people to know how much they need to be eating and what they need to do to recover from their activities and be healthy? That's a really good question. Who wants to take that one? I'll, I'll leave it up to you too.
2: I mean, I'll take a I'll take a stab at it. Um I think that there's a lot of confusion out there, right? And we know how much money, the billions of dollars that are behind diet culture, everyone's trying to sell you something, whether it's a food or an after exercise, you know, supplement, and it can be very confusing. And I work with the athletes that I work with in a pretty simplistic way. And I say, Hey, look, it actually doesn't have to be that confusing. Let's just make it really simple. And I actually have paper plates in my office and I've been doing this lately um, where I help athletes with kind of basic meal planning. And I'm like, hey, let's go through the, the three meals and let's talk about our macronutrients and let's write down examples of all of those macronutrients, right? And by the way, here's what like a hunger fullness scale looks like. And I love what you said about intuitive eating. And I often... Talk to my athletes about this um, this cross section of intuitive eating and prescriptive eating, right? And I want them to learn to be um, in tune with their body. So we do lots of body scans. We talk about what are the what are the cues for hunger and fullness right? And, you know, as athletes, it's not just about overriding those cues, right? As endurance athletes, we override the pain to be good at our sport. So I talk a lot about the difference between, hey, override the pain in your sport. And at the same time, you need to really not override those feelings in your body. Um, But at the same time, I think it's this mixture of intuitive eating and be in tune with yourself, but we also have to engage in prescriptive eating. You might not be hungry, but if you have a three-hour, you know, um, workout, you need to fuel for that three-hour workout, right? And t- I do a lot of talking about fueling before, fueling after. Let's just focus on, for the most part, carbs before, carbs and protein after. Let's mix a little fat in that. And you know, I really i I've been um, having a lot of fun with the paper plates. In, in my office. And, you know, when people, um, they they get online and they try to learn how to fuel themselves, there's a lot of confusion just because there are so many different ideas. And so part of me is like, hey, maybe it doesn't have to be that complicated, right? Let's like take it back to the, the basics. And you know, generally, if you're training more, you need to eat more. And that can be confusing, because if you're training hard, and you're really fatigued, that can suppress, you know, some of your your appetite. So we need to know that. Um, So I don't know if that
1: helps. I'm sure you have something to add, Pippa. Um. (laughs) Well, I'm not sure mine is all that helpful, because it centers around experience and figuring out what works for you. And, honestly think um one, one of the biggest and best takeaways i took from the america um female athlete conference in boston was that there's a reason why the people winning medals at the olympics are you know in their late or mid-20s and not their teens because they have honed this career's worth of experience and they understand what works for them and how to periodize training and nutrition to to really maximize their potential in sport and You know, it's the same when you think about what works for you on a day-to-day basis. It takes trial and error and learning actually on this bike ride, I need to eat before I'm hungry because I know what will happen if I don't. And it takes experience and time. But um, yeah, I think we rely too much on plans and prescriptive things and social media to tell us what to do. And actually it's all within us if we just listen to our bodies right i'm hearing intuitive eating <laughs> excuse me intuitive eating vibes again
0: <laughs> on that one um i it's interesting cuz when i this is a question we get a lot in our in the course because when we introduce intuitive eating of course immediately people are like oh well but how do i do that i literally I, sometimes some people are like i don't even have hunger cues anymore i don't know what to do um and i've kind of found over time that sometimes when i when I do prescriptive, what you called prescriptive eating there, Holly, like knowing I need a certain amount of carbs and protein, say after my um, workout, that becomes intuitive because, like later in the day, if I if I have my recovery shake with me at the gym, and I take it in the window that I'm supposed to take it, then I will notice that later in the day I'll be less fatigued. Right. So like my brain has started to make those connections and it almost then becomes intuitive. Like, I don't want to miss that fueling window because I know I'm going to feel like I want to have a nap at 3 p.m. (laughs) Um, If I do. So it's like there's this very interesting, like interplay between those two things that like actually you can once you start to connect the dots on them, I think it can start more and more things can become intuitive. Um, And I also think that eventually everyone must get hungry.
2: Right. Totally, totally. But, um, you know, I think that losing those, those hunger cues and even just being in tune with your body is, is one of the main symptoms of, you know, eating disorders or, or disordered eating. And so that's why, you know, whenever you're treating someone right for an eating disorder or disordered eating, the first step is refueling them. Food is the medicine, right? And so, People, yes, people aren't going to have those hunger cues or those those fullness cues if they aren't feeling themselves properly. Their body doesn't trust them, right? Their body, you know, starts shutting down. It goes into this like scarcity response, right? And so, yeah, you need to be fueling, you know, in a, in a consistent, reliable way in order to even get to the start line of, of learning how to check into your
0: I've personally been running in the Alma Cruz, and I love them. It's the shoe I always wanted and never knew I needed. The fit is perfect in every way. You can get your own pair of Hedas at Hedas.com and use the code Feisty20 for 20% off. That's Feisty20 at Hedas.com and it will all be in the show notes. And then use the code PERFORMANCE for 15% off your first purchase. That's code PERFORMANCE at lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance, whole 15% off. And the link is in the show notes. You can just click through there. Endurance sports should be accessible to everyone, right? and use the code FEISTY for two months of full premium access. That's right, you get two months of premium for free. So you quite literally have nothing to lose. So head over to mymotive.com, M-Y-M-O-T-T-I-V.com and use the code FEISTY, F-E-I-S-T-Y. And on a personal note, I know the founder of Motive, and he is driven to make triathlon and all endurance sports more accessible for the athletes who care about their performance, but who aren't quite ready for a full-time personal coach. If that sounds like you, definitely try the app for two months for free. You literally have nothing to lose. So, you know, I feel like for, I don't know, this is completely unsubstantiated, but for there's, we've gone through a couple decades of women being told that like 1200, 1400, 1600 calories is enough food in a day right and if you're in any way active I mean even sometimes if you're not that's absolutely not enough so we're kind of like unwinding all of that do you think that you know if we look at the average active sort of population do you think that a lot of people are are struggling with LEA and red s
1: and don't know it massively (laughs) I think we underestimate how many people are on that scale, and you know, yes, a lot of people might not have a clinical eating disorder, or maybe not even disordered eating, but a heck of a lot of people are potentially unintentionally undereating for their sport and for their activity level. Because I do think that we, as active women, need far more than we all realise, because of the reasons you've just explained, because of the culture we're working so hard to reverse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean I
2: see it in my clientele all the time. I mean I generally do work with athletes and the athletic population um but there is always I mean I guess I I won't speak in absolutes but there is usually some kind of component of preoccupation with what am I putting in my body? There are pressures to look a certain way and you know I think that there is this myth that the only people that struggle with food and Um, you know, body image issues are uh, skinny white um, runners. And, you know, I think we're learning more about atypical anorexia and we're learning more just about the prevalence um, of these issues. And, you know, the fact that binge eating is more common than anorexia and bulimia combined, right? And so this just really, yeah, Mm. yeah, yeah. And so this really just all leads to, you know, the fact that this is a very prevalent issue across, you know, the whole, the whole population. And yes, it is more prevalent in, in athletes. Um, but diet culture is, is everywhere. And the messages to look a certain way and, you know, be, uh, be a certain, you know, way, way are, are everywhere.
0: Yeah. So you two are doing a great job with Project Red S and, and um, getting information out to people. If folks are listening and they need, you know, they need some support or information, what kinds of, where should where should they go?
1: But where wow. should they go? hopefully um if they're not already on your website or podcast then our website provides a lot of information about what this condition actually is how to support yourself in either preventing it or overcoming it and also how to support someone that you care about um because i think that's equally important that we're all banding together to try to either prevent the issue occurring in the first place or do something about it um so it's it's red s.com um and we have instagram account at Project Red S. And if you just type that in, you'll find it. And yeah, we do link out to lots of different sources that we find helpful and credible. So um, yeah, we'll be linking to yours too. So
0: cool. Fantastic.
2: Yeah. You have an amazing team. I I, I just wanted to add that, you know, Reds and LEA is something that, you know, obviously this group thinks a lot about, Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes it feels like it can be a little bit of an echo chamber, right? We all know about this, but there is still a huge part of the population that doesn't understand it, including medical providers. And right. so I just Definitely. wanted to draw attention to actually a letter that Pippa drafted, um, where if an athlete or you know someone in the exercising population is concerned that they may be experiencing REDS, um, Pippa drafted this letter that they can actually take to their GP, their general practitioner, that explains the condition, that explains some of the symptoms, explains some of the diagnostic tools, right? That um, that uh, a practitioner can, you know, go through with with their patient um, or client, and and that's a really useful tool because we all know about this, but there is still a huge group of athletic trainers, physical therapists, doctors, specialists who really aren't aware. And, you know, that's part of the, the issue here, you know, that the athlete or the, the person might need to advocate for themselves in, in this situation. So, you know, our, our website is really meant to be, you know, kind of this all-inclusive resource where you can learn about it. It's very, it, the voice is very much athlete to athlete. Um, you know, at the female athlete conference, there was a lot of talk about how do we translate the the research and the science to the general population. And that is what we're trying to do. We're trying to be that vehicle where you know we're we're writing in um, an understandable tone. You know, we are again, that athlete to athlete voice. Um we're trying to translate the research and to make it approachable and applicable um, to the the greater population.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, I had, I mean, I had an experience with my um, healthcare provider, a a postpartum experience as an athlete, right? Where it's like, kind of like that same thing, I wanted her to be educated in what I needed as an athlete specifically. After, you know, I think we all have this feel that kind of disconnect where even with the most well-meaning physicians that not they can't, I, they obviously cannot memorize everything that's needed for every single part of the population all the time. So resources like that are really um, important. How do we support you? Are you a
1: nonprofit? We're not a nonprofit yet. We do plan on becoming one. It's kind of tricky working internationally and understanding, you know, getting a head around how to set that up in the most effective way. Um, but yeah, we do rely on generous donors and anybody who's willing to contribute to the cause, um, mm-hmm. which is is amazing. And people are very supportive of it. So yeah, it all every little helps. Amazing.
2: Mm-hmm. We're not we're not selling anything. Um, <laughs> you know, we I think sometimes. People think that if you're not a nonprofit, um, that you're out to make a lot of money or something right. like that. Um, and you know, really, so far at the beginning, it's at least streamlined our process and let us focus on you know our mission and our job without cumbersome paperwork and you know a board. Um, and eventually, maybe we'll uh, you know we might get there. Um, and just. It might be limiting us in, in some way, but, you know, right now we're really focused on on the project at hand, which is raising awareness and providing support and, um, you know, about, about this issue. So we're, we're happy to raise that flag and thanks so much to you for your work in this space. You're doing a lot um, and, you know, just really excited that more and more people are talking about REDS and LEA and, um, you know, this, this whole issue of fueling.
0: Yes, amazing. Well, we will put links to your Instagram and your website in the show notes. Um, And thank you both so much for everything that you're doing uh, for female athletes and really appreciate this conversation too. It's been great. Likewise. Thanks, Sarah. (laughs) Building muscle can be tough and gains can be so slow, even for those of us who do a lot of strength training. As an ex-endurance athlete who is now in perimenopause, I know this all too well. It can be frustrating to put in the time in the gym and not see the results I'm looking for. That's why it's super important to take the right supplements at the right time. One of those supplements is essential amino acids, which are needed to trigger muscle protein synthesis. Muscle protein synthesis happens when you eat high quality protein like eggs or whey. And by supplementing with additional essential amino acids, you can make sure you are getting the full benefit of your training sessions. Targeted essential amino acid formulas can be up to four times more effective than just eating protein. they stay in place when you are moving, the hydrophilic rubber nose pads actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they are secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in hot conditions. No matter what sport you do, Tefosi has shades for you, whether you love tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, or just hanging out on the beach. They are super reasonably priced, which I love, so I can have multiple pairs that go with any outfit. And of course, feisty listeners get a special discount. So head on over to TafosiOptics.com and use the code FM20. FM as in feisty media to get 20% off your order. That's FM20 at TafosiOptics.com. I'll put a link in the show notes to make it easy for you.